What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's a new year and a new way of looking at things. How to win, for example, how to win at life, how to be impactful around righting the wrongs that we have in our culture. All of this and more can be found in Cecil Harris's book, Different Strokes. It's a, an examination that chronicles the rise of the Williams sisters, Venus and Serena, as well as other champions of colors, closely examining how African-Americans are collectively faring in tennis on the court and off. Despite the success of the Williams sisters in the election of former pro player Katrina Adams at the USTA as the first black president, top black players still received racist messages via social media and sometimes in public. So welcome Cecil Harris. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. I appreciate being on with you. You say that the reality is that while significant progress has been made in the sport, much work remains before anything resembling equality is achieved. I have to say, now that I've read the book, I am inclined to agree with you. Um, The different strokes, Serena, Venus, and the unfinished Black Tennis Revolution covers a lot of territory. And I'd like to dive in, Cecil, right away to the point of the two great role models that we have now. Um, It happens to both be, I think, for the most part, uh, let's say, um, since you you chose Venus and Serena, it happens to be on the women's side. So the two great role models now are Serena Williams, you know, greatest of all time, Uh, level, um, her sister Venus, outstanding record, um, you know, unheard of for many to get where even she's gone. And then, of course, we have Naomi Osaka, who, as it turns out, has a younger sister, Mari. Um, And so it's two pair of young African-American, you know, Naomi Osaka plays sometimes for Japan, but she is Japanese-Haitian. In any case, um, two young uh, sisters of color playing at the extreme levels of the sport. In the book, you really depict what it took for that to happen, that the whole family made what I would call an executive decision early on. Let's have two daughters and let's devote our entire life to bringing them up in the game of tennis. So when you read that, extreme commitment. Um, I wonder how accessible of a sport this really is for people of color, for the most part. Well, it's interesting. The Williams family um, grew up in Compton, California, which is not a neighborhood of means in Southern California, but there were tennis courts. And once Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena, had the dream of turning his two youngest daughters into tennis players, he reached out to a neighborhood 
person, a Mr. Oliver, for tennis lessons, and he bought tennis books and VHS tapes and taught himself enough about the game to also teach his wife at the time, Orsine Price, so they could teach their daughters. The main thing is access to tennis courts. There are many predominantly black neighborhoods in America where there are no tennis courts. I grew up in one myself, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. Uh, tennis was not on my radar because there was nowhere to play. But uh, at least in the case of the Williams family in Compton, there were tennis courts where the parents could teach their daughters the sport and then bring in more experienced coaches to help them become successful professionals. And uh, two decades later, the Osaka um, family followed that model. Um, um, Linda Francois, the father of Naomi and Mario Osaka, basically told me that he followed the blueprint established by the Williams sisters. He actually said to me, the blueprint was already there. All I had to do was follow it. And once they moved to Elmont, a suburb of New York City, not too far from where the U.S. Open is played, they had access to tennis courts. And um, the fathers, in each case, along with the mothers, um, did the rest and prepared their daughters for what have become phenomenally successful careers. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at Orsine Price, uh, as a homeschooling these two girls, she also, she already had, they, they already, they're, they're, these are the mutual kids with Richard Williams, she had four other kids. Um, you know, I, I think that this idea of having, first of all, a big, strong family background, a, a strong support network in the family, access to tennis courts, huge. Um, but, you know, I, I also think, um, you know, with the Williams sisters, I guess what I want to say, and, and, and this may be a sensitive question, but um, you know, in thanking each time uh, for their brilliant championships, they always thank Jehovah and they have had Jehovah's Witness as a religious background. I wonder if you felt that this kind of very kind of strict, um, very disciplined, very rule bound form of religiosity also counted in as part of the culture, perhaps, or maybe not. It certainly isn't in place in terms of Naomi Osaka. But I wonder if you know if you felt as though that was an added dimension to it at all. I do think the faith that was instilled in Venus and Serena by their mother, mostly Orsine Price, um, helped them along the way, uh, gave them the belief that they could overcome any a adversity. And I think that the strong family unit was extremely important in both of their cases, but also the individual faith. I recall when Venus was 14, she played her first professional tournament in Oakland, California. She won her first round match against a woman almost twice her age, then faced the number two player in the world, and a reporter asked Venus, uh, do you think you can beat her? And Venus at 14 said, I know I can beat her. That comes from faith. <laughs> mm -hmm. She didn't have the credentials at the time to say she could be the number two player in the world. It turns out Venus lost the match but played very well and sent a clear message to the tennis establishment that even at 14, she was a champion in the making. But she had that confidence, and Serena also expresses that confidence. And I think it comes 
from their faith and how those two girls were able to stay on the straight and narrow, not get in trouble. We've seen other athletes, even other tennis players. Uh, Jennifer right. Capriati comes to mind who have been yes. arrested for various things, but yes. never in the case of Venus and Serena. Their faith, their moral upbringing, uh, the confidence instilled in them by their parents, and the sense that they are doing something somewhat bigger than themselves, that they would not only become yes. tennis stars, but they would inspire other young women in particular to want to become tennis stars. I think that was always uppermost in their minds, and faith was extremely important in bringing Serena and Venus to the level of global sports superstars that they've achieved. It's amazing. I, I really believe that's true, given that, you know, this have their rise uh, now. Now, you know, Serena's 37 or is she? How, how old is Serena Williams right now? Serena just turned 40, 40. at the end of September and Venus is yes. 41. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So their rise, let's just say whatever hurt, hurdles a, a person of color would face now and we'll go into more of them. It was much more intense then. Um, So they had significant obstacles um, and they didn't play necessarily, you know, by the USTA. Uh, They didn't go through a lot of the, you know, a a lot of the early juniors. They kind of went in their own direction. Um, But what I wonder about all of this is let's take somebody now, a modern sports tennis champion, Naomi Osaka. I wonder if, I mean, she's, she has certainly not fallen from grace. If anything, she's become a beloved tennis figure because she has had the nerve to take on, um, you know, the French Tennis Association and saying, you know, no, I'm not compelled to do a post-match news, con- news conference um, or pre-match news conference. I wonder, and she's taken some time off tennis, and I wondered if for someone like Naomi, um, you being well-versed in the biographical information of these players, has she really kind of hit the pause button to say, who am I? Is it greater questions? Is it her diffuse energy? Because she's now got lots and lots of endorsements. She's representing a lot of brands. Um, yes. What do you attribute to her, to her, you know, hitting the pause button and to even asking for time out and, and just a kind of a break, a mental health break? I think Naomi realized that the decisions that are most important to her were not being made by her alone anymore. They were being made by the tennis establishment. Uh, tennis is essentially a leaderless sport. There's no commissioner, but the sport is run by the four major tournaments, the Grand Slam Committee, the French Open in this case, was the tournament that initially threatened to expel Naomi and and suspend her before she dropped out. And then there's Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and the Australian Open. But in Naomi's case, she wanted to get back to experiencing the joy of living. She said something very revealing after her third-round defeat at the U.S. Open this past September, she said, the victories don't bring me joy anymore, only relief, and the defeats leave me feeling depressed. So I, I took that to mean Naomi stepped away from the sport so she can rediscover her, her joy, and she will compete in the Australian Open 
in January of 2022. And I certainly wish her all the best because she showed a lot of courage in admitting that she was having difficulty dealing with the, let's say, the trappings of fame. Yes, she is rich and famous now, but with that comes added responsibilities, and some of them, on the, I think, are unfair in her case. Um, she strikes me as someone, and I've interviewed her one-on-one, she strikes me as someone who has social anxiety disorder. She's not comfortable in even a one-on-one interview, but imagine having to go into an interview room and face dozens of reporters all looking for something, questioning her from different angles. That's very difficult for Naomi, and the tennis establishment still has not created um, a procedure that allows athletes who are shy, athletes who may have social anxiety disorder, an athlete who may have a stuttering problem, to say, well, I don't feel comfortable doing all those interviews. Can we do it a different way so I can give the media what they want, but I'm not being forced to do interviews before every tournament or after every match? It doesn't suit Naomi well. And because tennis hasn't really changed anything since she has stepped away, when she steps back into the tennis arena in January for a big tournament, the Australian Open, which she has won twice, she's a defending champion, I hope she'll be able to enjoy tennis again. Because when she left at the U.S. Open in September, she clearly was not enjoying her career. Absolutely. And I I want to say, really, first of all, I'm rooting for her. I. I, I always yes. root for her. But the other thing is that for the tennis associations to not create a safe space for people who have anxiety, look, these are not, you know, it's not a robot out there. They're, they're people. Uh, so their performance is, is driven by their internal motivations, as you say. And I also, I can't help but going back to the, the original upset of Naomi Osaka over Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, where there were questionable calls from the umpire chairs, uh, the umpire's chair. Um, That is a, a subject we'll leave alone just for a moment to come back to this point of ambivalence and how it might even take hold. Bottom line is the the U.S. Open crowd was so vehemently for Serena Williams. She was just about to capture her 24th championship. She was going to beat Margaret Court's record finally or tie it. Uh, Historical moment. And um, there were issues. There was a call. There was tempers flaring. Serena got emotional. Um, the chair umpire did not take it well. He didn't issue soft warnings. He actually uh, detracted point, you know, gave the warning, detracted points, then, you know, game and then problems, like big time problems. Then she's now in, you know, she's in jeopardy. She loses the match. So when the crowd responded to Naomi Osaka's win, she burst into tears because as a player, you're hearing nothing but booze. It was also perhaps for the umpire, but, you know, you, you, you expect to triumph the jubilation of, you know, defeating your iconic opponent. Um, And it was Serena who came to the rescue of Naomi Osaka by saying, Hey, people stop booing. She just played excellently. You know, this is something to be exalted. 
But I can't help but wonder, in your opinion, Cecil, as a sports writer, does that entree into the world of winning come with a kind of downside inherently? It absolutely does, Diane. And I covered that match for the New York Daily News, the 2018 U.S. Open final. And I was sitting in the media section, which meant I was sitting among the spectators in the lower bowl. Imagine 23,000 people at Arthur Ashe Stadium. And Naomi is hearing boos, and she thinks they're booing her. They were really booing the way the umpire handled the match. But Naomi didn't know that. It was her first major final playing against her idol, Serena, who was playing in her 31st major final. So Serena had all the experience. Naomi had none, but Naomi played a brilliant match. She won it. It was her day, but she was not celebrated. She did break down and, and cry after the match and during the trophy presentation. And you're quite right. The boos did not stop until Serena told the crowd, stop booing. She played an amazing match. She deserves to be the champion, and she deserved to win. But that did not lessen the emotional pain that Naomi experienced. I would guess that it's a form of post-traumatic stress disorder because Naomi has said publicly that she has been dealing with a form of depression ever since that match. That's the finest match I've ever seen her play, her first major title, but she could not derive any joy from it because it's still the booze that she heard. I would think that that doesn't leave you. You just try to compartmentalize it, put it in the back of your mind and carry on. But it did happen. And Naomi was not not able to enjoy her first major triumph and the finest match I've ever seen her play. Yeah. She was freer, uh, mentally freer in that moment than any other time. And uh, the determination was ferocious. I, I really, I mean, it's something that gives, you know, me anxiety just to think about it. Such an important win to be associated with such just a yeah traumatic moment. Absolutely the right word, Cecil Harris. Yes. We have to yes. pause here for a commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to dissect these issues even more, especially the idea of the underdog, underdog mentality uh, and whether... In fact, sports is a metaphor for life that we can translate into our daily lives. We're talking with one of the best in the business, Cecil Harris. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to 
Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Cecil Harris, an amazing sports writer who delves into sports psychology, psychology of uh, sports, and has written on sports for the New York Times, the New York Daily Post, New York Daily News, Newsday, the Raleigh News and Observer, Indianapolis Star, Sporting News, the Hockey News, Associated Press, and USA Today. He's covered such major events as the Summer Olympics in Atlanta, the World Series, League Championship Series, League Division Series, and All-Star baseball game, the Final Four NCAA Championship game, college basketball, the NBA playoffs, the NBA finals, and the Orange Bowl Army-Navy game in college football. So for the NFL playoffs and pro football, also the New York City Marathon, New York City Half Marathon, the Milrose Games and Track and Field, the Brickyard 500 in auto racing, the Stanley Cup playoffs and all-star game in hockey, and the U.S. Open and WTA tennis championships. He's appeared as an authority in the 2019 CBS sports documentary, Althea and Arthur, which would be Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe, all about tennis Hall of Famers. And uh, and these two in particular, the class, some of the book, two of the classiest, and we'll include Serena in this for her embrace of Naomi Osaka in the 2018 U.S. Open uh, and the U.S. hockey documentary, Soul on Ice. The 2011 documentary, A Perfect Match, about Gibson and her Wimbledon champion doubles partner, Angela Buxton. And now, your fourth book, Cecil Harris, Different Strokes, Serena Venus and the Black Experience in Professional Tennis, was published in February 2020 by the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, I want to pause there because this book is a seminal book. Uh, You've then, you know, broached it came it came into being right smack dab at the outset of the pandemic um it, it, it's a book that since we now have more time to read and can really delve into some of these issues is such a worthwhile study for anybody who follows sports and as me passionately tennis i want to go back to some of the issues you touched on in your depiction of the serena williams Osaka, Naomi Osaka uh, final, the first championship for Naomi. You mentioned during the break that, you know, Naomi's icon, idol, during her childhood and what she wrote about in a a third grade essay was Serena Williams. Imagine the enormity of then years later, you know, overcoming her in play. I want to understand from you, because you cover all these different sports, what do you think is the psychological element when a player walks onto a court, has nothing to lose and everything to win, but no pressure, no pressure on them? You're facing a person that's, you know, in, in Serena Williams on her, you know, 35th final, I think you said. And what's the psychology of somebody that just goes out there and can just let it all go because they've nothing to lose. The underdog syndrome, if you will. 
Well, yes, that was certainly something that helped Naomi in the 2018 U.S. Open final. She was able to play with a certain freedom and abandon uh, because no one expected her to win. If she had lost that match, no one would have said, oh, you did a poor job, Naomi. She was a first-time major finalist, and Serena was in her 31st major final. So just getting to the final was an achievement for Naomi, but she wanted more, and she was able to play with that freedom. She outplayed her idol on the biggest stage in tennis, the 23,000-seat Arthur Ashe Stadium with millions watching around the world. And even though Naomi mm-hmm. has won three major titles since then, she hasn't been able to play with that same kind of freedom because she's no longer the underdog. Now she's a superstar herself. Now she's one of the elite players that the others on the tennis tour want to defeat because that's how they'll get their name in headlines, by beating Naomi Osaka. But in 2018, she had that underdog mentality. She had the freedom of knowing, well, everyone expects Serena to beat me today, but I believe in myself enough to go out, and if I play my absolute best, my A game, I can win this match, and she proved it to everyone. But once you do that, you're no longer the underdog. Now you're someone that has that invisible target on their back, and the other players want to beat you to make a name for themselves. That's right. And you don't, in other words, you don't have anything to fight against. If the reputation, okay, so the odds makers, they're all betting against you. So so for anybody competitive, that's like a huge fight. Like you've got a fight on your hands now. You think I can't win this match? I'll just prove you wrong, right? I'll show you. Um, And do you think it it results in more intensity in striking the ball? Does it result in more risk-taking? Is there a certain carefulness that sets in, a kind of calibration that sets in? Um, You know, this idea that you're going to prove somebody wrong, how vital is that? You see it in underdog team sports as well. That's it. Um, It it gave Naomi that day a a sharper focus. She was able to concentrate so intensely on on every point to prove to herself that she could do it and to prove to everyone else that she could beat Serena Williams. And that's something that extends to team sports as well. You're absolutely right. If, If a team is expected to lose, but they believe in themselves, they can do amazing things. It, it just gives them more clarity. Uh, and they can, at times, take risks. One part of Naomi's strategy against Serena in that match in 2018 was to hit with authority to Serena's backhand. Not that it's a weak shot. Serena doesn't have a weakness. But Naomi's coach at that time, a gentleman named Sasha Bain, used to work with Serena for eight years as a hitting partner. That's a de facto assistant coach. So. Sasha was able to tell Naomi, if you use that as part of your strategy, hitting to Serena's backhand, you will have a better chance if you better chance than if you hit to Serena's forehand. So it worked for Naomi that particular day, and she mm-hmm. played with a freedom, with an abandon that an underdog can bring to the court. But as I said, Naomi is no longer the underdog. Shortly after winning that match, she won her first Australian Open and became number one in the world. And she's a global superstar herself now. So 
when people play her, they're trying to make a name for themselves. And they have the underdog um, mentality. If, if they believe in themselves enough to believe they can beat Naomi Osaka, a, a teenager, Layla Fernandez from Canada, is the one who beat Naomi Osaka in the U.S. Open this year. And that was a shocker because most people yeah. did not think Layla Fernandez had a chance. So that's what we see in, in sports. The most successful athletes are the ones who are able to take advantage of, of that opportunity. And in Naomi's case, she went on to win the championship. Layla went to the final and lost. But from now on, Layla will be someone that other players on, in women's tennis will say, well, if I beat her, I become a name because she was a U.S. Open finalist last year. Everyone knows who she is now. Mm-hmm. It's a real mantle to assume um, once you do yeah. have this kind of success. I love the idea. Well, first of all, the significance of coaching really came through in your book. Um, and and, and that, that is part of the package that I, I want to discuss with you, too. But, uh, you know, if the coach is able to look at the, you know, di- basically dissect the strategy and the skill set of the opponent, okay? So, Serena yeah. Williams she's a goddess and you know there's not much you can say but this backhand if there's a weakness is a weakness i mean this service game that she has is still unmatched um so Absolutely. i think a lot of coaches now bring you know particularly in women's tennis bring the strong serve in as a goal but the other thing about you know Naomi hitting to Serena's backhand. In other words, she's making a statement, right? See, so she's saying, I know your weakness. I'm going to serve yeah, I you. Know, I can hurt you with this shot. Yes. I can hurt you. Yeah. I'm going to hammer yes. away at this because I know this about you. And that like sort of worms into your, into your psychology, right? Like, uh Oh, she's like onto me now. Um, yeah. And, that's that's a really strong that's a really strong weapon to have that you have some psychological advantage. Um, that is what absolutely would you say true. Yes. Yeah. What would you say about Naomi? I mean, if someone's looking at Naomi Osaka, what are they saying um, when they're looking at a skill set? When players face Naomi Osaka, they're trying to get her off the baseline and bring her to the net to make her volley because she's more comfortable hitting. From the baseline. So it's an interesting psychological study. When Naomi is on court, I saw the match that she lost in the U.S. Open this year to Layla Fernandez. Layla was able to use slice, that you know, the ball clears the net but stays down low, or drop shots that forced Naomi to come in and volley. And Layla had a lot of success with that. So even with a superstar like Serena Williams, the greatest of all time, Naomi Osaka, another elite player, there are certain things that they are not they don't want to do during a match and if you are able to make them hit shots that they don't want to hit if you're able to get them out of their comfort zone somehow it greatly improves your chances of winning and so what naomi was able to do against serena in the 2018 final hit with power to serena's back end and again serena has no weakness but the coach convinced her that on that day, you're better off hitting to Serena's backhand than her forehand. And that's the sort of psychological edge that if you have a coach who knows that or if you've studied a player enough on video to know, 
hey, this player doesn't like to come in and volley. Let me use slice and drop shots to make her come in and volley. That greatly improves your chances. Right. And maybe you're even just looking at body language or facial expression, right? Like if they kind Mm -hmm. of dance around it a little bit or, you know, there's a little hesitancy. Uh, or some kind of like, um, you know, makeshift uh, workaround to the backhand. You know, there's things that you can see. Um, but this idea of coaching. Okay, so Sasha was, you know, the hitting partner of yes. Serena Williams. He's going to know everything about her, um, her game. And I want to go back to the, the, the Black Tennis Revolution. If we're okay. going to get anywhere with this, uh, I mean, the dynamics, the economics, um, the dynamic of the economics, some, it's got to change. I mean, you point out in your book, and now we're, you know, a couple of years in, um, send your, okay, let's just say you're not going to homeschool and you're not going to, you know, do, do you know, the, the, the Williams model, which is what the Osaka model followed. Um, yes. quite effectively. Um, let's say you're going to try to send your kid to tennis camp. Okay. Two part question, Cecil Harris, because this I felt like was sort of between the lines. If you send your kid to tennis camp, if you can afford to send your kids to tennis camp, thank goodness, more African-Americans okay. are upwardly mobile and have become affluent. So that is a real possibility. What about the loss of the family unit, what about the loss of the potential neighbor uh, neighborhood support, the hood? What about the loss of the potential faith-based support? All the invisible strings that are <laughs> that are supporting this tennis, this very young tennis player. How does that work out, particularly in the African American community? There's something I would. Compare it to a double-edged sword in a way. If your family has the financial wherewithal to afford to get you into one of these expensive tennis academies, yes, you'll be coached by um, elite tennis coaches. You'll get to play with other talented people your age, but you'll miss out on experiences with your family, with your friends in your neighborhood. And if you are, say, the only black person or one of the few black people in a tennis academy with dozens of players, you may feel alienated. And if you feel alienated, you may not be able to perform at your best. It's a theme I've written about in hockey as well, examining the history of blacks in hockey. If you're the only black person on a team or the only black child at a tennis academy with dozens, oh yes, even though they're all adults, but your life experience is so much different from theirs You'll miss friends, family, customs, things that you are comfortable doing. And just playing tennis all day doesn't necessarily make up for that. You'll, mm-hmm. You can often feel lost and alienated. And I think one thing that really helped the Williams sisters, Diane, is they had each other. Venus and Serena are only 15 months apart in age. So when... Richard Williams and Orsine Price made the decision to take them out of junior tennis because they didn't like the way junior tennis is run. Venus and Serena could practice with each other. Naomi and Mario Saka could practice and play against each other. They didn't have to leave the family unit. So these tennis academies can be a double-edged sword for a talented young 
boy or girl of color because you have to leave everything else behind and become immersed in this tennis world. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to love tennis. You may grow to hate tennis because that's, it becomes an all-consuming thing and you, you miss your siblings, you miss your friends, you miss your neighborhood, your school. So um, I, I think that more needs to be done to bring tennis into inner-city neighborhoods. So children who show talent at a very young age don't have to leave everything else behind to learn tennis. And that's one reason I went to Chicago to visit uh, Kamal Murray's uh, tennis village. Uh, Kamal Murray coached Sloane Stevens, an uh, uh, African-American woman, to the U.S. Open Championship in 2017. He's no longer on the coaching circuit. He's more focused on his tennis academy, which is on the south side of Chicago. Rather rough area. Happens to be where former First Lady Michelle Obama grew up. I went to his XS Tennis Village in Chicago to see what he does. And I think that's the model that needs to be replicated around the country. Don't take people out of their neighborhoods to teach them tennis. Build tennis facilities in their neighborhoods so they can learn the sport. And if they develop a love for it, they still can still have they can still have the love of family and friends. They don't have to leave in the case of Excess Village. They don't have to leave the south side of Chicago to go to a tennis academy in Florida or California. Right. So it's sustainable. It's sustaining yes. and it's sustainable. And that was the big takeaway from this book. Um, I really feel that whole push is really necessary. The isolation of a kid in a Florida tennis camp there is definitely a slight, um, let's say, a cultural, racial, racial bias to that. Um, yes. And, you know, there, it's just inherent. It's very subtle, but it's everything that you just described. And it goes back to your original, utterly brilliant, simple point, um, which, you know, is that you, you, you are... Um, you have to be connected in yeah. order to to perform. You have to be connected as a whole person. It's more of a holistic uh, viewpoint of of the person who's playing tennis. And it can be right, that so you know, right now we've been we've been uh, we've got to take a commercial break. We've been talking a lot about the women's game, uh, but you know when we come back from the break, we're going to take a look at. African-American tennis players who are male. And what's up with that? How is it that they haven't broken? Is it about fraternal, you know, like the sisterhood, that there's not the brotherhood, but there's a deeper examination to be made in that subject and no better person to do it with than Cecil Harris, our guest today. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. 
To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Cecil Harris. What an amazing book, Different Strokes, Serena, Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. Uh, as I mentioned, um, and, and, and the... The utmost point, um, which I think is deceptively simple and also has a racial slant to it, is access to courts. So, Cecil Harris, you growing up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, cool area. At this point, it's one of the (laughs) coolest, but no tennis courts in sight. So, in other words, to make tennis academies indigenous, as you mentioned, Sloane Stevens' ex-coach, Kamal Murray, Okay, so it's $80 for the lessons versus $80,000 a year at the prestigious yeah. prestigious tennis camps, uh, for example, IMG in Bradenton, Florida, near where I spend some time. You know, we're not really focusing on this, how, you know, first of all, isolation disconnects the person, how the, the sport has to come to the hood. Um, all of those things take time. It's an evolution. Um, do you feel that you have moved the needle with this book? I hope so. I, I, I think that what Kamal Murray is doing is an example that I think other people in positions of authority with the U.S. Tennis Association will say, well, that's working in Chicago. We could do that in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Detroit, Los Angeles, on and on. Um, it's not happening yet, but I I'm optimistic because it's a way to produce more tennis champions. Um, It's no accident, I believe, that no American man has won a major tennis title since 2003, Andy Roddick at the U.S. Open, almost 19 years ago. The success in American tennis has been primarily um, the Williams sisters, (laughs) but also... Lindsay Davenport, uh, and I think to produce more tennis champions, you need to bring the sport to where the people are because it's not realistic to have everyone say, well, I'm going to cobble together $85,000 a year for my child to learn tennis at the IMG Academy or the Everett Tennis Academy or one of the other elite academies. It's beyond the financial means of most families, but Kamal Murray's model, $80 per session and it's working and so far there are examples of people who have come out of his program who have received tennis scholarships to prestigious universities one of his best female players earned a a tennis scholarship to the university of notre dame so there are success stories but not yet in professional tennis so i think as these success stories continue more young girls and boys earning college scholarships to play tennis at some prestigious universities, excellent academic universities, more 
people in the USCA will say, hey, we need to replicate this. Absolutely. And when you look at, you know, I guess it's sort of connecting the dots, right? Because you look at, you know, basketball, a sport that, you know, thank heavens, you know, (laughs) as you point out in the book, which is appalling, there was a time when, you know, when the Dr. Julius Irving, I grew up in Philadelphia. So, you know, Dr. J, I mean, come on, this is like, this this is a cult right there. Um, You know, it's, it's that, well, blacks have broken in, they've broken into basketball, but not tennis. So then tennis had this sort of dainty mythology around it that, you know, blacks couldn't, couldn't break into it somehow. Well, no, if there's basketball courts on city blocks and there are not tennis courts, then it stands to reason, right? Like this is a connection right. that we can make. Um, That's you right. know, the whole like fetishism of tennis playing and how it used to be a country club sport. I think this paradigm breakdown is fascinating. It's necessary and fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Let's turn now to the male side, because as you say, Andy Roddick, I'm sorry, that's like beyond the memory of many of our listeners. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. You point out, well, one thing that, you've, again, deceptively, brilliantly simple points. If you're playing tennis, you're not playing basketball. You're not playing some of the other sports that say are that say are emulated by the majority of African-American males. Attitudinally, how does it feel now? Is it evolving? Is it becoming more enlightened? Just, you know, I I think you have a really good handle on this. Why American, African-American males are not drawn to tennis for these reasons. Yes. I, I, I know for example, watching players go from high, well, before the college colleges implemented the rule making you wait until you're 19 to go to the NBA, remember when people like Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, straight from high school to the NBA, instant multimillionaires. Young black males see that, and they want to emulate that. They don't see black male tennis champions. Arthur Ashe was before their time. Uh, Yannick Noah, who won the French Open in 1983, before their time. Uh, we have young black males who may like tennis if they're exposed to it, but they don't see people who look like them winning major championships. And I asked Donald Young, a black male tennis professional, about this issue for the book, and he said his experience growing up in Chicago that, yes, we know who the Williams sisters are, but they're girls, they're not boys. If black boys need to see young black men winning tennis championships before the dream becomes more real for them. Now, they can watch any NBA game, any National Football League game, track and field, boxing, mixed martial arts, and they're seeing successful black men in those sports. Even in the National Hockey League, they're seeing black men succeeding. But they're not seeing it in tennis, and until they do, many black teenage boys will not even have tennis on their radar. That's the unfortunate part of things. The success right. of Venus and Serena has not been enough to spur enough black teenage boys to want to be tennis players. Because it's, it's what, who we see that, yes. that subtly and subliminally makes us think we can do something. So I think yeah. you're so uh, spot on about this because 
clearly the women's side of the game is ahead. Why? The phenomenon of the Williams sisters. Uh, You know, the Osaka family in their own kind of beautiful way set out to recreate it and did. It's it's just, and I also have to say, I, I really, I think in terms of the evolution of um, sports and how psychology and our understanding of how important psychology is, you know, they, they've created now in Naomi Osaka a really important, sensitive sports figure who's speaking to the timeouts that Simone Biles needed for mental health and speaking to yeah. the idea of, you know, treating people holistically. Um, I, I really, I, I, I think, okay, so until, so maybe then the trajectory that you're talking about of inner city courts, uh, college scholarships, playing in, you know, college tennis, uh, getting, or, you know, returning pro, um, that the first time we see a really, you know, we not in this country, yeah, Yannick Noah and Gay Monfies, they're 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 not from America. So, you know, right. we need to see that um, that kind of well, money earning. Um, let, let's turn to the money earning. Uh, the 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 overhead in the sport is phenomenally high. Um, it is. Yes. Can you pick that part apart for us a little bit, maybe more so than other sports. Yeah, the cost of lessons is extremely expensive. And if you are a talented junior and you're coming up through the traditional ranks of junior tennis, you're expected to play junior Wimbledon, junior French Open, junior U.S. Open, junior Australian Open. That's all very expensive. And unless your country's tennis federation is going to pay for it, and that's not always the case. I interviewed um, Scoville Jenkins for the book. He was a black professional tennis player for for seven years. He's now a coach at Oklahoma State University. He clashed with the USTA involving the on, on the issue of funding. Yeah, he had talent, but they didn't always provide the income he needed to play in junior tournaments. That can be a definite problem if you're not able to travel and play in as many tournaments as others. You'll fall behind. You may love the sport as much as other boys and girls, but if they come from a family of more financial means or if they're getting more support from their country's tennis association, they'll be able to have opportunities that you won't have, and it's almost inevitable that they'll surpass you. And uh, I tell a story in a book about uh, Scoville Jenkins playing junior tennis with a man named Novak Djokovic. They were about on the same level, but Novak, who grew up in Serbia, was able to get funding to attend a prestigious tennis academy in Germany. And the next time Scoville saw Novak, he said to me, Novak was no longer a boy, he was a man. And now mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic is one of the all-time greats in, in, with 20 major tennis titles. But when Novak and Scoville were you know, teenagers, they were at the same level. Now they're not even close because of opportunities that Novak was able to get in his form of years that Scoville was not able to get. Exactly. So you've got an infrastructure that is systemic. Well, let's say it's systemically geared against um, being supportive of certainly underprivileged, certainly minorities, certainly people of color. It's, uh, it, you, yes. you have to kind of dismantle the whole kind of 
dismantle the whole thing step by step. I would say moment by moment or brick by brick. You also talk about the moldable layers. I mean, tennis, now you've got coaching staff, you've got uh, physiotherapists on the tour with you, you've got the cost of touring, um, you've got, you know, the, the expenses of staying somewhere. Um, yes. You know, if you don't have endorsements, how's all this going to work? It, it's very difficult without having that um, ex- that extra income from endorsing products. And you have to win to get those endorsements. It, it's um, strange. Uh, the, the corporations are not likely to invest in you until you've done something. Then, you know, Naomi Osaka goes from having a few endorsements to now being the highest paid female athlete in the world because she started winning major titles. But for most people, you're struggling. I interviewed a a young African-American woman, tennis professional named Sasha Vickery. Um, She plays in the U.S. Open every year, but when she comes to New York, she stays with a friend of hers in Queens because she can't afford Manhattan. You know, the players have to pay for their own hotel rooms. They have to pay their own travel expenses. And it would be difficult for her to pay $400 a night to stay in a hotel in, in New York City. So she... You know, she stays with a friend in Queens and just tries to get by. It's difficult for her without the financial backing that the superstars get or people who come from families of means. I mean, I know Sasha Vickery loves tennis as much as anybody playing the sport professionally, but I fear that her career may be shortened because she just won't be able to afford to stay out there. That's a real shame. I think, too, you know, you pointed out it's an individual sport. You're not getting on the team bus or the team charter flight or the team block of hotel rooms. You're doing it all on your own. I wanted to just come back to another nuanced point. Um, I actually just um, noticed that we are almost running out of time, but I'm going to just quickly ask you in the minute or so that we have left, Identifying as a black, as an African-American athlete, tennis player is a nuanced, is a nuanced thing. Madison, he is self-identified as an individual, neither white nor African-American. Is it the future of tennis? Is it important? Um, How do you see that? I wonder, I I think everyone should be able to identify themselves and uh, not criticize someone who doesn't want to put themselves in one camp as opposed to another camp. But um, it's interesting that um, she, well, an athlete who doesn't want to identify one camp or the other can lose the kind of support that she would get otherwise or he would get Mm -hmm. otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's an individual decision. I respect it. But sometimes um, it just leaves you without as big a fan base as you would have, as big a support network as you as you would have so it's it's an interesting question that you know i i can't and i'm not qualified to make that decision for any player but yeah it, it's just it's it's a it's a tough decision to make how you identify yourself how you want others to identify you because it can some sometimes alienate you from people who would be your fans and supporters otherwise right. 
Absolutely. Cecil Harris, thank you for your perspective. I agree. And I also think that identifying a certain way brings you not just your common, um, your common, uh, the, your people in support of you, but also your allies. And um, it's just an interesting ongoing conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of talking with you, and I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Diane. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I want to wish you a happy holiday season. Thank you. You too. It's been very meaningful. And we'll leave the dangler out there is the James Blake story. Everyone should pick up different strokes and find out about that one. I want to also <laughs> encourage people to reach out to Cecil Harris on his Twitter account, on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, certainly, again, thanks to our engineers and to our producer, Robert Cialino. Until next time, stay safe and stay competitive. Thank you for <laughs> dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.